0: If you are able, if you'd kindly remain standing to honor God's word, it comes to us this morning from Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 9 through 15. And I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy And I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, son of Neriah, son of Maseah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. In their presence, I charged Baruch, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware jar in order that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Good morning. Couple of housekeeping uh, notes uh, before we begin the sermon. I want to say good morning and welcome to those participating online. Uh, I want to let you know that today's a little bit special day. We have a town hall meeting, so after the sermon, um, after the final hymn and benediction, don't turn off. Stay on with us, and we want you to participate in some exciting news, some of the things that are happening uh, with this new capital campaign that we're doing, and. Uh, and that will also be for those of us who are here. We hope you can stay. If you're members of the church, we hope you can be a part of this important meeting. We'll be have time for question and answer, we, we'd love to get, uh, have a chance for everyone to be heard. Also, I, I do want to uh, point out that we have some very special guests here this morning. Uh, Adam and Michelle Kane are here, and they are a part of our mission partners. And Adam grew up at this church, so would you guys stand just real quick? They're from Honduras, and they're, uh, they've been missionaries. And... Uh, And they're now planting a church in in Honduras. So we get to support and pray and partner with them. And for that, we're very, very grateful. When I was in seminary, I studied the Greek language, biblical Greek. And I learned a, a wonderful word. It's the Greek word telos. It's an ancient Greek word that simply means goal, purpose, or end. Telos. Aristotle said it had the special meaning of the state in which something's nature is fulfilled. Tell us, the state in which something's nature is brought to an end or a goal or fulfilled, or where something is fully in act, meaning fully doing what it intends or is supposed to be doing. The Hebrew people, uh, we've learned as we've gone through this book of Jeremiah, have lost sight of what they were supposed to be doing. They, They weren't living into their goal or their end. What is your goal? What are you living into? What is your telos? What are you wanting to become? Are you clear about your goal in life? Let us pray. Lord, these words are yours, and thus, it is you who should speak them. We humbly ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher this day, in these moments ahead. Help us to hear and listen. Amen. When our daughter Hannah was five years old, she played five-year-old girls' soccer. It was just across the street in the Cochise Fields, just right over here. Uh, if you've never seen five-year-old girls' soccer, it is amazing and wonderful and chaotic. Um, her team was the Purple Tornadoes. They were not winning any games. They were horrible. There were, it was pure chaos. They, were, they had girls talking in the corner of the field, just chatting away while the game was going on, others picking daisies, and, and you, you also had a group of parents that were hysterical, five-year-olds. I was very, very calm, but Julie was hysterical, <laughs> screaming. I mean, they were all, it was just pure, it was torture and chaos. And Coach Rob, he was so well-meaning. Coach Rob was, he would pull the girls in and say, girls, time out. He'd bring them in. And he'd say, we're going this way. <laughs> Our goal is here. Move that way. And they didn't listen. They couldn't get it. I don't know why. He tried and tried. And then the parents would scream louder. And, and it would just all sounded like noise. About the fourth game, Coach Rob did something really important. And when I say important, I mean it was a sacramental act. It functioned like a sacrament. He brought in a box, a big box, and he had an arrow on it pointing this way or that. And he set it up at the, at the midpoint line, and at halftime, he flipped it over. <laughs> and so all during the game, he would point to the box. This is the way we are going. This is our direction. This is who you are supposed to be. And it made a lot of difference. It made all the difference. In today's text, Jeremiah does something similar for the nation the nation going under great stress. Some of them had already been taken into exile. He creates a sign to help the people orient and stay connected to their goal, their purpose. You remember as we've gone along through the series, Jeremiah had a tough job assignment, a very tough calling. He would have to speak to his people about their disobedience, and that's not an easy job. He was called a traitor, he was treated like he was an enemy. And he kept on doing it day after day after day, preaching and warning them about God's judgment that was coming for their disobedience. That He, he warned them that the promised land, the, the precious city, Jerusalem, would be taken from them. Not only that, but the temple, the very place where God was thought to dwell, was burned to, would be burned to the ground. Jeremiah told them that God was emotionally spent. Like a furious parent, God had had it with them. Like a loving parent, God had admonished and had warned them so many times, listen, please listen, but they refused to hear. Last week we talked about how people, a segment of the population, had already been taken into exile. In fact, it wasn't a one-time process. There were actually three waves of people who were taken into Babylon, and the siege of the city was over uh, a number of years. It wasn't just a one-time deal. Um, many years, many waves, of, uh, three waves of deportation of exiles. We're now, in our text, at the final point. The third wave of exiles is about to be taken away, and the city is about to be utterly destroyed. And once again, we discover that Jeremiah is in prison, He kept on preaching throughout all of this time, and King Zedekiah had heard one too many of these sermons. He knew the sermon by heart, and he was tired of hearing it. The people were all tired of hearing it from Jeremiah. Political leaders find it difficult to appreciate a relentless purveyor of bad news, and Jeremiah was seen as trying to stir up the people. He was called unpatriotic, enemy of the state was accused of being against the war effort, the resistance. Zedekiah threw him in jail, thinking that being behind bars it would shut him up and it would, it would take away his sting. While Jeremiah sat despondently in prison, the city was now fully under siege. It was like a scene from one of the Lord of the Rings movies, I imagine. The enemies surrounded Jerusalem and inside the people were starving and sick and desperate, and Jeremiah was heartsick sick over all of this, witnessing the foretold judgment now coming true. And in the midst of all of that chaos, the strangest event happened in Jeremiah's life. The Lord told Jeremiah, sitting in jail, that his cousin, Hanamel, would try to sell him the family farm of all times. I mean, this is crazy. Um Hannibal, I, I think, might have considered that maybe, maybe he was thinking, well, Jeremiah, he, you know, he's one of those crazy religious fanatics. He's that, well, doesn't every family have one person that's that really religious crazy fanatic? Maybe he thought that was Jeremiah. Maybe he thought Jeremiah would just be crazy enough to, to make a real estate deal in this crashing market um, because the Babylonians were about to come and take it all away. This is crazy. You don't do this then. Um, but God told Jeremiah your cousin's coming, take up his offer, pay him 17 shekels, have your secretary Baruch draw up a deed, sign it. I want everybody to see you sign it. I want lots of witnesses to watch you sign this deed. Put the original copy in a, in a jar that will, earthenware jar, so it'll last a long time. So these jars, I want it to hold this deed for a long time so the people will know it's safe and it's there. And once again, Jeremiah does what the Lord asks him to do. He spends the money, he buys the field. I like the way one commentator put it. He said, this was like buying up a lot of stocks at the very moment the stock market was crashing and you knew it was about to crash, but you did it anyway. This was like purchasing a house and signing the deed, the the dotted line, at the very moment when the foundation of the home was starting to slide into a sinkhole. This was like donating a kidney to someone with terminal cancer and and who the doctor said only has two weeks to live. This doesn't make sense. This is a complete joke. It makes no financial sense whatsoever. But this deed, this purchase, served as a sign, as a pointer to God's promise that one day, God would bring the people back. it be 70 years, but He will bring them back, and it will be theirs. This parcel of worthless real estate would suffice as a strange but powerful sacramental reminder that all will be well again and that the people will be allowed to return. You can imagine over the years in Babylon, the exile, someone saying, whoa, 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 complain, complain, complain. But then somebody saying, hey, but do you remember... Remember what Jeremiah said? Do you remember what he did? Do you remember that deed? There was a promise attached to that. Let's keep hope alive. Let's let's focus on that. Let's be shaped by that promise. So a new message has been given. Let's be clear. God's ways are not clearly our ways. God holds the future. Jeremiah's purchase of a field became a symbolic reminder of who God is and his character. He doesn't abandon. He keeps promises. It was something concrete. It was a deed. It was symbolic, but it pointed to the future. It pointed people in the right direction. It helped do that. Believe it or not, in a a few short weeks... Uh, We are going to start the season of Advent. Can you believe that? At the end of this next month, Advent is going to be upon us. And traditionally, on the first Sunday of Advent, um, which will be, I think, November 27th this year, we sing the, the same carol at the first Sunday of Advent, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It is, they think, maybe the oldest Christmas carol still sung. The author is unknown. In all likelihood, it was a monk or a priest who penned the original words sometime before 800 A.D. He would have been a scholar rich in knowledge of the Old and New Testaments. The hymn draws heavily upon Scripture. It's one of my favorite songs that we sing here at our church. I love it. The first thing to notice is that this song is a prayer And it's addressed to our Lord. So if we sing it rightly, we are actually praying. We're lifting our deepest longings to God. We're asking Him to come into our lives, to come into our world, to come into our specific situation. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. That word means God with us. Oh, come. O come be with us, God, and ransom captive Israel. He's talking about the exile. Ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. You know, I've sung this song for many, many years in church. And I've enjoyed it and loved it. But only recently have I come to fully understand it. I think a little bit better. And walking through this book of Jeremiah has helped me understand it. Seeing the long sweep of where this exile came from. It is a prayer to ransom lonely, captive Israel. Think about the exiles. Away from their home. The ones in Babylon. I've sung it and read these words. And I... I think I thought they were exclusively about location. Boy, it's lonely in exile. It's it's hard being in Babylon. Lord, bring us home. Bring us back to our land. But I think there's more going on here. Coming home to the land doesn't fix anything. Living in a particular place or location does not make everything right. Having your life in order with health and wealth and success and fame does not make it right. You can have all of those things, land, promised land, home, health, family, and be missing and going the wrong direction. And in those places, life can be chaotic and frustrating and full of anxiety. There are many pulpits in America, sadly, today that preach about what we call Zionism, meaning that once the Jews come back and take over Israel, then everything will be okay. No. They tried that. (laughs) They lived there. It wasn't okay. It was a chaotic mess, and God saw that. And he brought him back, and it was okay for a while, but then it became a chaotic mess again. So what are we really asking and yearning for when we say, God, come captive, ransom Israel, come be with us? The truth is, you can be in exile anywhere. You can have it all. You can be given it all. You can look around and say, I'm doing really, really well, and you can be thrust into the midst of exile We are wrong to assume that the end, the goal, that the arrow is simply pointing to our physical well-being or return to the promised land. The telos, the goal, is to discover that God really does want to reside in your heart. He really does. He really does. And you can discover that end and that goal In Babylon, you can discover it when you're in a season, a long, hard season of unemployment or loneliness. You can discover that truth when you're battling anxiety or fear. God really does want to reside with you and make a home. And until we discover that or receive that gift, we're always going to be floundering in exile. St. Augustine put it this way. He said, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. What good is a promised land if you are miserable without God in your heart? What good is a temple if you've forgotten the very heart of the one who was meant to dwell there? In Babylon, the people actually are going to learn to yearn for God more. Babylon serves a purpose. They're going to relearn and reform and understand we really did and we really want. And so that it has a good end because the people are going to learn how to trust on him more. Jeremiah's deed was a reminder and a pointer to say this is pointing to God who keeps promises. Trust him. Live into him. Be with him. Exile was not just meant to be punishment. It was also meant to be formative. Any time in life we are apart from God, we're going to struggle. We're going to be restless. See, life in Jerusalem under Jeremiah was full of anxiousness. They were very restless. Poor people were being exploited. They had forgotten that God wanted to live in their hearts. And he'd asked them to follow his lead. As you know, if you've been around our church during the last couple of years, we've done some, uh, I I think, pretty neat things. And one of the the things that God has brought to us is two young new pastors who are planting new churches. Um, Jackie Parks is working with folks at South Scottsdale Presbyterian just down the road. And one of the neat things about her heart and the people who are a part of that church is they have a real love and heart and care for people experiencing homelessness. Helping them get a place to live and food to eat and clothes to wear is so important. These are vital things that people need for human flourishing. But that's not the goal. That's not the telos. It doesn't solve. The arrow is pointing to God. And so she and her community lovingly and they patiently point to God and work and speak and love these folks and say, you know, God loves you and you're made in the image of God and He wants to reside in your heart. He wants to reside there, and here, now, today, you can be at home with Him. Pastor Clint is at our Midtown Church, down on uh, in the middle of the city. And they have a different ministry there. They, are, they have a number of younger people who are urbanites. And um, some of them have deconstructed their faith. They, are, they grew up in church, but now they have lots and lots of questions. And one of the things Clint does down there is he has a, a weekly skeptics Bible study in which people come and they ask any question they, they want about the faith. No holds barred. They can ask anything And again, Clint patiently listens and understands and says, I understand how you feel. And they go through it. But at the end of the day, he points to God. You can't live in skepticism. You can't live questioning all the time. At some point, we've got to decide and discover and receive the fact that God wants to live in our hearts. And he's good and he's gracious. And so he does that. Their community does that. It's, it's, it's wonderful. They keep pointing. They keep insisting that the goal in life is not to be healthy or wealthy or wise. The goal is to s- discover the heart of God. You know, Jesus met many people, by the way, in the promised land. He met a number of people in the promised land who were miserable Living in the right place does not ensure a good life. A number of people who are miserable. Returning to the land is not a fix. But here's the thing. When these people were in close proximity to Jesus, suddenly their hearts were not so restless. Suddenly that ache inside of them was taken away and they they scratched their heads and they said, What is this? Who is this? I don't have that ache anymore. I feel comfortable. I feel like maybe he's saying the things that matter and he's pointing me to the things that ultimately matter. It was wonderful. It was like a cool drink of water in the middle of the desert. When they were with Jesus, something new and refreshing and wonderful. They were close proximity to the kingdom of God in their midst. That can happen anywhere. We can be in close proximity to Jesus in Scottsdale, inner city Phoenix, or Ukraine, or Russia, or at the border. What is the goal? What is the telos? What is the end? What are we living into? The goal is to live each day in a new home. One constructed by Jesus Christ. What is the promised land? It is wherever Jesus is. And he desperately wants to live in your heart and in mine. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful for the foolish act that Jeremiah did. What an amazing thing to put his trust in you. Even at cost, at the end of the day, he trusted your word. He bought the field. He gave us a pointer, an arrow that reminded us and reminds us today still of your good character, of how wonderful you are, of how you keep promises. Lord, this week, we pray that you would be close to us, that we would receive the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, that he would, we would live near and discover the joy found when we're in close proximity to you. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.